This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new nonfiction books to read but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for. Then sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Sign up takes just a few minutes, answer a couple questions about what you like to read and what you're looking for, link up to your Goodreads profile if you have one, and you're done. Each TBR delivery contains three titles in the recommendations only level or three new hardcovers, and you'll receive a new shipment every three months. Give your bibliologist feedback, update your requests to stay in line with your reading goals and expanding horizons, and basically have your own personalized book concierge. Recommendations only is available worldwide. Hardcovers are available in the U.S. For more information, visit mytbr.co, where you can also sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukura, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Saturday, July 17th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I'm okay until you said it was halfway through July, and... <laughs> I know, right? I just... I, uh, I feel like time has accelerated... And I know that that's, that's a cliched statement at this point. I, I, everyone I've talked to seems to be like, where did time go? But it's mm-hmm. still jarring every single time I hear the date. Yeah, well, especially after like 2020 just like plodded along and felt like it was 800 years long. The fact that we're like midway through 2021 feels a little bit shocking. Yeah. But at the same time, January feels like 800 years ago. So. It's true. It's very strange. Time has no meaning anymore. <laughs> Um, so you went on vacation and I did read some stuff, albeit not nonfiction. It's true. Yes. I was on vacation for my day job, like the first 10 days of July. So I took off like the whole July 4th weekend and everything. Uh, and I brought a ton of books. I went up to my parents' cabin for part of that. And I brought a bunch of books with me and I had some nonfiction. And then I was just like, no, I'm going to read all fiction <laughs> the whole time. Uh, and it was very satisfying. I finished almost a book a day through most of vacation. Whoa. Yeah. And not, a lot of them were shorter, like on the shorter side, but yeah. My favorite was a book called The World Gives Way by Marissa Levin, which is science fiction that reminded me a lot of like the vibes of Station Eleven, even though like the plot really has nothing to do with it, but it had the same like living at the end of the world kind of vibes and like had these really cool world building. Um, so that one was real fun. Another one that I really liked was People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry, which is like a romance novel about two friends who like every year for many years went on a big summer trip and then they had a falling out a couple of years ago. And then this year they're trying to recreate their trip and hijinks ensue, uh, which was very, very good. And Outlawed by Anna North, which is I think one of like Reese's book club picks like at the very beginning of the year, which is sort of this feminist Western. That one was really, really fun, too. I discovered that Reese's book club picks are like 
my jam. So now I'm going to basically read all of them, which feels a little embarrassing for some reason. But no, (laughs) I'm very into it. (laughs) Um, No, those books are popular for a reason. Uh, I read Outlawed and did not love it. But, um, Mm. you know, that's that's not what this podcast is about. (laughs) No, what did I'm curious, though, like, what did you not love about it? I I feel like the the marshalling of my thoughts towards the themes of fiction is not <laughs> perhaps enough. possible in this moment. I can do facts. Uh, I think that just the I didn't love the main character. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I knew any of the characters, so I didn't care about them. Um, but I think it's like people's writing styles will just you know ping different things in different people, and I think yeah. that her writing style does not ping the right things with me. <laughs> That's totally fair. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, it's not going to be among my like favorite books of the year, but for like a vacation distracting read, I thought it was, it was what I, what I enjoyed. Yeah. And it's pretty short. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With that, let's talk about our first sponsor, uh, a book I am very excited about. This is Algonquin Books, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream by Dean Job. Dr. Thomas Neal Cream's killing spree spanned the United States, Britain, and Canada with poison as his weapon of choice. Author Dean Job transports readers to the late 19th century, this is my favorite time, as Dr. Cream's crimes marked the emergence of a new breed of killer, one who operated without motive or remorse, who, quote, murdered simply for the sake of murder. For fans of Eric Larson's The Devil in the White City or the podcast My Favorite Murder, the case of the murderous Dr. Cream is an unforgettable true crime story. And uh, so basically... In this story, in the span of 15 years, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream murdered as many as 10 people. At the time, a death toll with almost no precedent. Poison, again, was his weapon of choice. And it exposes the blind trust given to medical practitioners, which also reminds me of the podcast Dr. Death, um, Mm -hmm. as well as the flawed detection methods, bungled investigations, corrupt officials, and stifling morality of Victorian society that allowed Dr. Cream to prey on vulnerable and desperate women, many of whom had turned to him for medical help. Crime Reads calls the book chilling and fascinating. So again, that is The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream by Dean Job. Thank you for sponsoring. Yeah, I have a copy of that one and I haven't picked it up, but it looks uh, it looks it looks real good. I like the cover. <laughs> yeah. I like the cover too. It's a it's a good one and also very creepy. All right, so with that we're going to jump into a couple of news stories. Alice, you have the first one. Oh, yeah. So uh, Barack Obama has a summer reading list, which is very fun, which we'll link to uh, an article on Book Riot that Kelly Jensen put together. But the nonfiction on the list, which is uh, very sparse, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. that's fine. Um, There are two, but we're going to we're going to say it's three. The first one is Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. That is a nonfiction look at the Sackler family, whose three generations of doctors developed and destroyed the reputation with Valium and Oxycontin. Another is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future by Elizabeth Colbert about how humanity has impacted the environment around us. I love her. She's great. And then the one that I'm kind of like, it's not really nonfiction, but okay, is When We Cease to Understand the World by Benjamin Labatut, a work of biographical fiction about the lives of real scientists and thinkers whose work butts against morality in complicated ways. So biographical fiction, eh, you know, let's say half, <laughs> half in, half out of the nonfiction world. Nonfiction adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. So Barack Obama reading a lot of fiction this summer, but also a couple of a couple of uh, well-known nonfiction books from this year that he's got on his list. So I think that is, that is cool. Yeah. 
All right. So mine is sort of the combination of a story that's been happening kind of in the background related to nonfiction for quite some time that we haven't really talked about. But uh, it is a few weeks ago, Howard University, a historically back uh, university, announced that Nicole, Hannah-Jones, and ta Coates are joining their faculty. Hannah Jones is becoming a tenured member, and she's filling a, a newly created Knight Chair of Race and Journalism. Our Coates will be a faculty member in the College of Arts and Sciences. Hannah Jones will also be founding the Center for Journalism and Democracy, which will focus on training and supporting aspiring journalists in acquiring the investigative skills and historical analytical expertise needed to cover the crisis our democracy is facing. And the reason this one is particularly cool is that uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, she did the... Um, 1619 Project for the New York Times, which is a look at the history of slavery in the United States, and that is being turned into a lot of different pieces going forward. Um, She was trying to go to um, University of North Carolina, but there was a controversy over her becoming a tenured faculty member that was politically and potentially racially motivated. And uh, eventually, they were going to grant her that tenure after like a very protracted or very long and complicated and kind of unpleasant experience. And she was basically like, no, thanks. I'm going to go to Howard University. That's not going to make me jump through all those hoops. So um, I think this is a satisfying ending to that whole saga. Um, We'll link to an AP story that kind of sums up everything that happened. But I'm really happy for both of them. And I think it's exciting to have both of them on faculty at a college to really help educate the next generation of Black journalists, because um, I think that's going to be really important. And the journalism profession needs to diversify a bit because that is the only way to like truly cover more more different kinds of stories. So I think that's exciting news and we'll link to both of those articles. It's so neat. And it's really cool that the – is it the program there that's being underwritten by like a group of large funders that are basically I think just, so, like, yeah. So I would just – I just had this image of them, like, in these discussions, like, you know, behind the scenes, kind of going, like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> like, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna announce this super cool thing. Um, yeah, three philanthropic foundations. It's, yeah, it's such a, it's such a great initiative. And, and yeah, it, a, a satisfying ending to the story, like you were saying. Right, satisfying when people who, like, have gotten screwed by uh, politics and other things get to sort of make their own choice and come out victorious, I would say. All right, so uh, with that, we will jump into this week's new nonfiction, which are books that have come out recently or coming out soon that we're excited about. Um, We've got more this week than we might normally have because uh, we didn't do July new releases in our last episode, so we've each got three to talk about. So my first one is called Easy Crafts for the Insane, a mostly funny memoir of mental illness and making things by Kelly Williams-Brown, which came out July 6th from Putnam. And so I want to, but even before I start talking about this, give some uh, content warnings. There's trigger warnings in this book and probably in my summary of it for really frank discussions of mental illness, including depression, anxiety, and ADHD, and a very frank, especially in the book, discussion of a suicide attempt. And so if those are things that are triggering for you, this is definitely not going to be a book for you but I still found it very engaging despite those really difficult topics. So um, Kelly Williams-Brown, she is the author of two previous books, uh, Adulting, which is the book that gave us the term adulting in the first place, uh, and then another book called Gracious. And this book is a memoir about a period of around 700 days between 2016 and 2018 when her life just catastrophically fell apart. In the space of that 700 days, her marriage collapsed. She broke three different limbs in completely separate incidents. Her father was diagnosed with cancer. She fell into a deep depression. She started this relationship that became very toxic very quickly. 
She lost several of her friends. Like, it just, her whole world sort of fell apart personally against the backdrop of, like, the United States between 2016 and 2018, which also I remember and was sort of catastrophically falling apart and feeling like institutions were just disintegrating in front of our eyes. And so she is writing about kind of all of those experiences and what kept her moving forward through this time, which was crafting. Not like fancy crafting, but just like little and accessible crafts and creations that she writes about how the ability to like make even something as tiny as like an origami paper star helped her feel like she is here and she can do something and has something to add. And so um, the book is uh, about all of those things, about how crafting can connect us. And then she has some really cute sections where she explains the crafts that she did and how they were connected to how she was feeling at the time. And so despite the like very dark topics for some of the book, she's very funny. She's a very funny writer. And one of the things that I think I have been drawn to in books this year is books where the author has a very distinctive voice and she does have one. Like I picked this book up thinking I would read a few chapters and I was just immediately drawn in. Like she just has this very engaging and welcoming and frank and honest voice that I found very compelling. And then there's also a lot of like, I think personal resonance for me in this book. Like I had some... Not similar experiences, but I had a period of like 2016 to 2018 where like I also felt like my life had fallen apart and I had some really significant changes personally against, again, that context of like Trump in America and feeling like democracy was failing us at the same time. And so like that experience and the way that she ties those things together also had some like real personal resonance for me that like I found very engaging through the book. So parts of it are very dark and hard to read, but she has a really compelling sense of humor. I do not think she portrays herself universally flattering. Like I think she has a fairly good sense of like her own um, culpability and a lot of the ways and things that happened to her that went badly. And so it's not going to be a book for everybody based on the content warnings. And also I think her voice might not be for everyone, but I I found it very compelling and I really liked it. So Easy Crafts for the Insane, a mostly funny memoir of mental illness and making things by Kelly Williams Brown. That seems like such a different sort of book. Yes, it's very different from the other two that she wrote. And she writes about, she writes about how like she had gotten known of like being this person who was writing books about like how to be successful while like on the inside she felt completely unsuccessful and was battling depression and a lot of like or a lot of insecurity and how like those two things being disconnected also made it very hard for her. Does she regret having created the term adulting? She does, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my next pick is, uh, uh, I will say a very me pick. Uh, when, when I saw this was coming out, I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about that. So it is The Passion of Anne Hutchinson, An Extraordinary Woman, The Puritan Patriarchs, and The World They Made and Lost by Marilyn Westerkamp came out July 1st from Oxford University Press. So who is Anne Hutchinson? Anne Hutchinson was a Puritan who came over to America from England. She ended up being banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Why was she banished? Basically, she was attending sermons, as you did all the time as a Puritan in uh, colonial America, and started uh, having women to her house after, right? And, you know, sort of like chatting about the sermons, and she would provide commentary. So then these meetings got really popular, and so she started offering meetings for men, too. And then governors started listening to her, and basically the, the people in charge were upset about this. And (laughs) so she was also, there was a whole disagreement about 
being saved like through grace or works and it gets complicated we don't need to get into it but so she and her followers are banished she goes to rhode island um which was a, a place of um religious liberty i would say roger williams founded it for the outcasts from the massachusetts bay colony essentially <laughs> and so this book by Marilyn Westerkamp, she said that she wanted to write a biography of Anne Hutchinson. She's been really fascinated by her for years, but she said there's not enough information about her biographically to justify an entire book. So what this is, is talking about her and this this conflict that she had with the, the Puritan authorities and kind of what happened from that. And it looks at issues of gender, patriarchal order, empowerment in Puritan society through Anne Hutchinson's story. And it's probably not for everyone. But <laughs> for those of you who are like intrigued by this, um, I'm very happy to present it as a new release. Also, just check out Anne Hutchinson's Wikipedia entry. If, you know, if you're not going to read the book, because she's fascinating and one of our um, sort of just like 17th century American women who you just, you might have heard of her, but should maybe just learn a little more about because she's interesting. Okay, so again, that is The Passion of Anne Hutchinson by Marilyn Westerkamp. That is a very Alice pick. <laughs> I do love the Puritans. Like, they were really, really something. They were so you know? weird. They were so weird. I think we forget how weird they were. Uh, and how that weirdness, like, has trickled through our whole society even until today, you know? Well, it's like we talk a lot about religious extremist books, and, like, they were religious extremists. <laughs> yeah. We're like, this isn't good yeah. enough, I'm leaving, and they crossed an ocean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so weird. All right, I feel like maybe the theme of this episode is books that were good for us, but maybe not for everyone. <laughs> Because that's that's a little, I mean, this one, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. So uh, my next pick is Better to Have Gone, Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia in Oroville by Akash Kapoor, which came out July 20th from Scribner. Uh, and I picked this one because I have a weakness for books about utopia and utopian societies and how they kind of fall apart uh, because, like, it just never works. And, like, just the idea of trying to, like, found an ideal place in a world that is kind of a mess. Um, so this book is sort of dual stories. Um, one about the earliest residents who lived and died in Oroville, this international utopian community in India. And then the other thread is like a history of that place. And so the author and his wife both lived in Oroville as children. Um, his wife, Orlis Graft, is the daughter of this these two residents who died. Her mother, Diane, was a kind of like hippie from Belgium who came to this place. And then John Walker was this handsome scion of a powerful East Coast American family who was her stepfather. And they lived together in Oroville and then died when she was 14. And so then she had to leave and go live with um, extended family. And then the author, Akash, also lived up there. And so they knew each other's children and then reconnected later as adults. And so part of the story is they decided to leave New York City as adults and move back to Oroville with their two sons because they wanted to try and like live in this community again. But also while there, they wanted to try and uncover the mystery of John and Diane's deaths because this was kind of mysterious and unclear what had actually happened. So they return from, like I said, return in 2004 from New York. They kind of establish themselves in the community and then they try to understand the history of the community and also their own personal connection to it. So I really love those two threads, like this very personal story, but then also this larger history of Oroville and utopias and trying to understand like what it is that brings people to that even idea. Like, why do we even try to do that? Um, and I also really love that 
um, in interviews they've talked about, uh, Orlis and Akash have talked about how like this book really is a collective effort. Like he is the writer, but they worked really closely together in interviewing people who still live in this community and people who knew their parents and people who are part of the founding of it to try and bring this story together. So I love that it's this kind of connected personal project for the two of them as well. So yeah, if you like books about utopia and some of those things, I think this will be interesting. And I think it has an interesting like mystery thread along with it that kind of keeps it moving along. So that is Better to Have Gone, Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia in Oroville by Akash Kapoor. I mean, that sounds really good. The Did the parents die in the community? Yes. they And they died like right next to each other and like within a day of each other too. And so then they were like, well, let's go back here and bring our kids. Like that's very... <laughs> I think that's the sort of yeah. sticking point for me. I'm like, wait, your parents mysteriously <laughs> died. You don't know why. And you're like, hey, you know what? Let's go live in that place. Yes, it's it's interesting. Wow. that I mean, I, I would want to read that. It sounds good. Okay, pivoting. My next pick is The Brilliant Abyss, exploring the majestic hidden life of the deep ocean and the looming threat that imperils it by Helen Scales was out July 6th from Atlantic Monthly Press. So I really like this title. I think it's got a lot of grandiose language, which I enjoy. And what this is, is, um, well, she starts you off being like, talking about how she was on this uh, research ship with, I think it's like 10 scientists and a crew of 11 to man the ship. And then they have, you know, like one of those deep sea submersible things with like searchlights and like little clampy things to grab stuff. And so like you just start off and it's like already interesting and like in the middle of action, uh, which I enjoy when nonfiction knows to do that. But um, so this is a Basically, right now, we're in the middle of an era of deep sea discovery um, called a golden era. And we are able to find uh, and explore much more uh, in terms of like areas of the the deep sea, which even growing up, right, I think they were like, yeah, you know, we've started to look into space. (laughs) And but in terms of uh, on our planet, the main unexplored area is the depths of the ocean and there's stuff down there we just we can't reach we don't know what's down there so the fact that we our technology is making it so that we can go deeper and deeper uh and seeing so many horrifying things (laughs) (laughs) i i don't know if this podcast has made it clear i love animals i love learning about nature and i will click on things that are like here's some stuff we found in the depths of the ocean but it's almost always completely terrifying Mm mm-hmm So what she talks about is how there is an extraordinary interconnected ecosystem deep below the waves that has a huge effect on our daily lives, influencing climate, weather systems, with the potential for much more, uh, and says good or bad, depending on how it's exploited. So a lot of these creatures that live in the deep capture and trap vast quantities of carbon that would otherwise be poisoning our atmosphere. Um, There's novel bacteria that could hold the promise of new medicine. But it also has um, these really enormous mineral reserves that uh, nations and corporations want. So they're mining them, which is clearly bad for the planet. So it covers a lot of ground. <laughs> but again, it's it's written in, in a way that's really interesting and like keeps your attention and, and by a scientist who also knows how to write a book, which is impressive uh, for scientists. So again, that is The Brilliant Abyss, exploring the majestic hidden life of the deep ocean and the looming threat that imperils it by Helen Scales. 
So that sounds really good. That is an excellent pick. And yeah, I agree with you. I will always click on stuff that's like, here are new ocean creatures. But like, boy, deep sea ocean creatures are real intense. They look so weird. And they have so many teeth and frequently no eyes because they don't need them. Yeah. Oh, man. Intense. All right. uh, So my next pick is uh, After Cooling on Freon Global Warming and the Terrible Cost of Comfort by Eric Dean Wilson, which came out uh, July 6th from Simon & Schuster. And so the author, Eric Dean Wilson, is a teacher of climate-themed writing and environmental justice at Queens College. So he's coming at this book from that perspective. Uh, And this is a book that explores the history of air conditioning. Uh, It also ties that into climate science and philosophy to look at specifically the creation, the use, and then the afterlife of Freon, a refrigerant that has ripped a hole in the ozone layer. So he looks at sort of when it was invented in the 1920s and how like people thought Freon was just this amazing thing to efforts in the 1980s to ban it because we discovered how bad it was for the climate um, and then looking through all of that history. So you mentioned your last book, one that kind of like jumps right into action. This is another book that does that because I think like the history of air conditioning maybe doesn't sound super jazzy, but uh, he opens with a story about how he is going around the country with this guy who buys up old tanks of Freon that have been stockpiled around the United States and then tries to destroy it because one of the like biggest contributors to climate change and ozone depletion is these chemicals that we use for comfort and air conditioning. And so another like thread of the book, and I think kind of one of the like important and interesting and unique parts is that he is also trying to look at like the cost of comfort, right? Like air conditioning is a comfort thing that a lot of people don't have access to. And so he's looking at how our like reliance on air conditioning impacts the climate and that how people who don't have access to air conditioning are often those who are bearing the brunt of the impact of the environment that air conditioning has. And so he's connecting also like the history of Freon and air conditioning to issues around capitalism, systemic racism, and our values that kind of are leading us to have this like refrigeration kind of crisis anyway. And so I just think that's a really interesting bunch of threads to try and tie together. Um, He has a really engaging writing style. So this is a thick book. It's like 400 pages long, um, which I'm not sure, like 400 pages on the history of air conditioning sounds kind of intense. But um, I think the way that he's going to braid it into those other different issues and, and concerns will make it a really interesting read. So that is After Cooling on Freon Global Warming and the Terrible Cost of Comfort by Eric Dean Wilson. Um, I looked up while you were talking about it, if Freon is still used and Quora.com, <laughs> which is... <laughs> definitely reliable uh someone said who seems to be at least list themselves as an hvac person that yes but there are different kinds of freon and that mostly it's like pretty ozone friendly now but then in some countries there are a lot of old refrigerators that are still it's very fascinating also i i tend to tell people with uh longer nonfiction page lengths i'm like a lot of that's probably end notes that's true yeah no so the As I understand it from this book, like Freon is not supposed to be used anymore, but there's like a whole collection of it still out there because like there was a lot of it that existed. And so it's still being used in a lot of like older machines and older cars and older systems that people are not willing or able to upgrade to newer versions. And so that Freon exists and is still like getting into the atmosphere, even though like it's not really supposed to be used anymore. And so part of what the guy that he profiles in the beginning is doing is like buying those old Freon stockpiles to try and destroy them so that they don't, they stop being like used and reused. Good for that guy. Mm -hmm. See, I'm telling you, there's someone interested in everything. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. 
Um, okay, my last pick uh, is Surviving Mexico, Resistance and Resilience Among Journalists in the 21st Century by Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante and Janine E. Relly. It's from July 20th, so just out, uh, from University of Texas Press. So this book I was not able to get a copy of. However, I wanted to talk about it. Because it's, first of all, it's a university press book, and I like to highlight those. And also, it's like a topic that I don't see covered a lot. Um, so I wanted to highlight it. But so uh, Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante is an associate professor in the School of Journalism at the University of Arizona. And so this is, you know, very relevant to her life being a journalist. And since 2000, more than 150 journalists have been killed in Mexico. And today the country is one of the most dangerous in the world in which to be a reporter. So in this book, uh, Gonzalez de Bustamante and Relly examine the networks of political power, business interests, organized crime that threaten and attack Mexican journalists who are still doing their job. Like, d- despite like this, you know, like, I mean, 150, that's that's so many. I tried mm-hmm. to do math really quickly in terms of in the last 20 years, 150. I mean, that's definitely more than five a year. So the problem, I mean, on top of all of this is that it's not just criminal groups that want reporters out of the way. It's also um, people in the government because they want to shield corrupt authorities uh, who are, you know, also shielding these criminals. So it's all very, like, interconnected and – uh, frequently, journalists have to wait for like a green light to publish not only from their editors, but from organized crime groups. So but despite this, they've like built communities within themselves and are supporting and that kind of thing always makes me really emotional. <laughs> but just like, I'm just like really proud of the journalists there. So again, that is Surviving Mexico, Resistance and Resilience Among Journalists in the 21st Century by Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante and Janine E. Relly. Man, that's a really good pick. I knew but didn't know how bad things were. And so I feel like that's a really important book for people doing really impossible and dangerous work. So really good pick. All right. So with that, we'll jump into our second sponsor, which is There Will Be Lobster, Memoir of a Midlife Crisis by Sarah Arnell. And uh, so her seemingly picture-perfect life has a flip side. She's in the midst of a midlife crisis that looks more like hitting rock bottom. She is a jobless, divorced, empty nester who is hiding behind a facade of happiness and success while navigating loss, loneliness, and a cancer diagnosis. The more she searches for happiness, validation, and love, the more they elude her. This woman's journey forces readers to confront their own life changes and how they too can rise back up no matter how far they think they've fallen. Uh, The stories and anecdotes in this memoir will assure you that you are not alone. In this book, you'll learn about how a rogue lobster, a dying rock star, a meditation guru, a famous medium, and a former monk all helped to put the author of the book on a path toward light, hope, and healing, which is, that's uh, that's really great. That's a good summary. So uh, the book is There Will Be Lobster, Memoir of a Midlife Crisis by Sarah Arnell, and it is available now where books are sold. All right, so this week's weekly theme is one that I feel like we've both been, like, we put it on the back burner for a little while and we're both really jazzed about it, which is heist nonfiction, because true stories about people stealing stuff are awesome. Do you have any other uh, preamble for our heist segment? <laughs> uh, I mean, everyone loves a, a heist thing. It actually just reminded me of that Rick and Morty episode where they go to a heist convention, which is <laughs> <laughs> really great. Yeah, no, heists are fun. Um, and uh, most of them are seemingly focused on jewels. So yes. we're going to talk about that. And I also think like, I mean, not all heists, obviously, but most of them are like, they're not super violent, right? Like there is some probably, but they're not violent in the same way true crime is. So it's a little bit lighter true crime, which I know we both appreciate. 
Oh, that's true. The word heist does kind of have this like whimsical kind of a feel to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my first pick is Flawless, Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History by Scott Andrew Selby and Greg Campbell, which is a book that came out in 2012, so it might be a little challenging to find. I'm not sure. But I've been watching a lot of the TV show Leverage right now, um, (laughs) and so I keep wanting to find books that, like, give me the same vibe as that. And so this one does to an extent, but it's also, like, much more fact-heavy, obviously, than an uh, episode of Leverage would be. So I think that's something to keep in mind. So... In February 2013, thieves broke into this allegedly airtight vault in Antwerp. They never tripped an alarm, and they managed to make off with more than $108 million worth of diamonds and other jewels and other valuables. So the crime was, like, essentially perfect, right? Like, they, the, in Antwerp, this vault that they went into is inside what is known as the Diamond District, which is a super secure area of Antwerp that is very hard to, like, even get into. And then the vault is super secure. And so it was really almost a perfect crime, but they did not get their getaway was flawed. And so the police really quickly zeroed in on this band of professional thieves fronted by this Italian guy who had rented an office in the building where the vault is held and then cased the vault for two years before they finally like tried to rob it. So they figured out kind of who was responsible for this crime really quickly, but then how they actually did it, because it was very difficult to do, was a mystery for a long time. So uh, the two authors, Scott Andrew Selby is a Harvard Law graduate and a diamond expert, and Greg Campbell is the author of the book called Blood Diamonds. And so they decided to go on this global quest to uncover the true story of this heist. And so they track the thread of the story kind of all over Europe, looking at who the people were and how they think that they could have done it and try to come up with like a, a compelling story about how this crime was committed because at the time they wrote the book like no one had ever really admitted to it and nobody had ever explained how they actually achieved the crime or managed to pull off the heist so like I said there's a lot of really fun stuff in this there's a lot of like this is how the vault worked and this is how the security was and they had all these cameras and so it gives you this like super clear picture of why this heist was so hard but the part that I'm having a little bit of trouble with that I think like your mileage may vary on is like is a very facty book and so it'll go off on these threads where like There was one about, like, the history of this town in Italy where the guy who led the heist was from. And I was like, I don't know if I really care about this very much. And so I feel like maybe they had a lot of facts and didn't, like, trim it up quite as much as they could have to focus just on the heist. But if you're a person who likes facts in your nonfiction, those asides, maybe they will not be quite as, like, deterring as some of them have been for me. But overall, it's really fun and, like, does give me the leverage vibe of, like, giving you, like, an overview of the crime and all the stuff that was happening. And I really like that part of it. So. Flawless, Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History by Scott Andrew Selby and Greg Campbell. I care about the history of a random town in Italy. <laughs> See, I, that's what I was thinking. I was like, this might be like an Alice book because it has like a lot of those facty asides. <laughs> I will say, though, when you were saying that, that reminded me of Victor Hugo's books, and that drives me <laughs> nuts. Yeah. Half my major was 19th century French literature, and I never need to read Victor Hugo again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, okay. My first pick is The Great Pearl Heist, London's Greatest Thief in Scotland Yard's Hunt for the World's Most Valuable Necklace by Molly Caldwell Crosby. This just sounded fun. And it was by a woman and a lot of heist books are by men. So Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, So this is the summer of 1913. So right before World War One, which everything changed after that. So it's, it's still a more innocent time. But there are two brilliant minds pitted against each other, a celebrated gentleman thief and a talented Scotland Yard detective in the greatest jewel heist of the new century. Um, this is a strand of pale pink pearls. 
worth more than the Hope Diamond, and it has just been bought by a Hatton Garden broker. So they called this the Mona Lisa of Pearls, which I thought was fun. Um, And basically, jewelers are like, wow, but also thieves are like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So as the necklace is going from London to Paris, it vanishes. And meanwhile, there is uh, Joseph Grizzard, the king of fences. Uh, This is fence as in, you know, someone who sells stolen property. Uh, And he is the leader of a vast gang of thieves in London's East End. He grew up um, on the streets of Whitechapel during um, Jack the Ripper's rise. And he was wealthy, married, and a father, but he is also a criminal. And he decides that the pearl necklace is a challenge. Meanwhile, there is Inspector Alfred Ward. Uh, who patrols the streets before joining the brand new division of the Metropolitan Police known as Detectives. So you've got like, you've got this this king of the fences, and then you've got this new detective as this this profession is like on the rise. And so Ward, uh, Inspector Alfred Ward, he catches some of the, this says great murderers, I don't know about that, of Victorian London, and then he's asked to try to find these pearls and this thief. So it's being compared to the Great Train Robbery and uh, called a cat and mouse game. And it just sounds, you know, it's just fun. It's like what what Kim was saying about heists feeling, it feels more like a fun crime, <laughs> despite, <laughs> mainly because it there is less chance of someone getting hurt, at least in a physical way. So here it's more just sort of like, oh, someone got a thing, you gotta catch him. So this is one of those instances, again, that is the Great Pearl Heist, London's Greatest Thief, and Scotland Yard's Hunt for the World's Most Valuable Necklace by Molly Caldwell-Crosby. That sounds really excellent. I think the other thing that's fun about heists is that, like, you're stealing really expensive stuff from, like, people who can have really expensive stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of a bummer when, like, things get stolen from museums, but also, like, when rich people lose their stuff, you're kind of like, well, you know, that's okay. Yeah, oh gosh, with the pandemic, some not well-guarded museums in England, I think at least, had things stolen from them Mm. because they have really valuable stuff. But, you know, I think it's kind of just like, they're like, well, we're a museum, so like, don't steal. And some people did, and it sucks. But yeah, having rich people have their stuff taken is kind of like, okay. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So my next pick is Diamond Doris, the true story of the world's most notorious jewel thief by Doris Payne, uh, which she wrote with a woman named Zelda Lockhart. So Doris Payne is a jewel thief. And she grew up in the segregated coal town of Slab Fork, West Virginia. And she was basically told, like, you can't, you're a poor poor black girl, you can't do what you want. And so she vowed to turn the tables after the owner of a jewelry store threw her out when a white customer arrived. And so she decided she was going to become a criminal. So using her charm, her wit, and her fascination with magic, she began shoplifting small pieces of jewelry from local stores in her community. And over the course of uh, 60 years, she did a bunch of heists. She became a world-class jewel thief and pulled off numerous diamond robberies with her and her boyfriend then fenced the stolen gems in Hollywood. So all of her crimes and uh, heists and everything went unsolved until the 1970s, at least in part because the stores and the police didn't want to admit that they were being duped by a black woman, which is hilarious and like way to use your disadvantage to your advantage. Eventually, her boyfriend turned her in and she was arrested after stealing a diamond ring in Monte Carlo. But then she escaped in escaped from prison and was then not arrested until 2013 in San Diego. And she had to spend some time in jail. And so Diamond Doris is now 87 years old, uh, or she was 87 at the time the book was written. She lives in Atlanta and is like celebrated for being super awesome at stealing things. And so she, this whole memoir is just her story. And I think 
there's just like so many things about this that are delightful. Like heist, you don't often get heist stories written or about black women. And so that she was able to like become this world-class thief despite those challenges and like those limitations and that she actually like used her gender and her race to her advantage to try and get people to underestimate her and that she was able to be so successful for so long is just really great so uh memoir by a notorious jewel thief diamond doris the true story of the world's most notorious jewel thief by doris Payne. that's awesome delight I, that came out really recently was it last year yeah it was like 2019 yeah oh then okay okay last one is Vanished Smile, The Mysterious Theft of <laughs> Mona Lisa by R.A. Scotty, which I thought was a fun through line because so it's good the Mona Lisa of pearls and then the actual ah, Mona Lisa. Yeah, yeah. So at one point, the Mona Lisa was not as well regarded <laughs> as it is now. Uh, there's a whole reason for why that happened. But basically, in 1911, one day, the Mona Lisa vanished from the Louvre and it took more than a day for people to notice that it was gone which can you imagine that now no i have that's insane i have a photo of me standing in like a a room in the louvre right it's like where the mona lisa is filled with people and i'm five foot two and i was holding my arms above my head with my phone to like take a picture because i was like (laughs) it's so slammed all the time so yeah the idea that even if it was gone for like at least during museum hours gone for like Mm -hmm. five minutes people would be like where is it yeah where is it Anyway, so it took over a day. So some of the main suspects were Pablo Picasso and Guillaume Apollinaire, who, you know, Picasso's obviously an artist. Guillaume Apollinaire was uh, a writer and an art critic. And so French detectives, they tried all these new techniques like fingerprinting and trying to, like, trace (laughs) the thieves. And this, you know, like, new sort of, like, international media uh, as an idea, you know, sort of, like, try like was hyping, like, you know, oh, the Mona Lisa has been stolen. And so all of these people went to the Louvre to see the spot where the painting had been. Gee. I know! Um, I mean, people didn't have as much to do, I guess, in 1911. But... <laughs> So they were, like, leaving flowers and notes and, like, set new attendance records. And then uh, for more than two years, the Mona Lisa was gone, which I did not know that that had happened. I didn't either. Yeah. I think I knew that she'd been stolen at one point, but I didn't know it was for two years. So it's it's part love story and part mystery. And uh, if you want to know the love story part, you got to read it. So again, that is Vanished Smile, The Mysterious Theft of Mona Lisa by R.A. Scotty. Man, that is fascinating. What a great pick. We got art heists and jewel heists. Yeah, lots of good heists. There's even more stuff that can be stolen, but those are common heists. Uh, like the falcon thief and the feather thief. So also birds. Yes, birds. Birds, jewels, and paintings. (laughs) Awesome. Well, there are many other examples of heist nonfiction, but those are just some recent ones, sir, that we wanted to talk about. And so with that, we will wrap up this week's episode talking about the books that we are reading right now at this very moment. So I am just planning to start a book that's been on my list for a really long time that I just happened to find at a used bookstore uh, last week that I was excited to actually find. And the book is called Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death, and the Hard Truths in a Northern City by Tanya Talaga, which is the story of seven young, it's a true crime story about seven young indigenous students who are found dead in a northern city in Ontario. So it's about like the history of that community and the students who died between 2000 and 2011, uh, which sounds really dark but i just think like this is an important thing that we haven't really talked about or that's just starting to get more um attention and so i like a good true crime book so and a by an award-winning investigative journalist so that's my current read 
Oh, yeah. That I mean, that sounds hard, but I remember, do I remember that coming out? Or maybe I've just featured it in something. It's pretty recent. I want to say it was, I'm looking at Amazon right now, 2017. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's, speaking of, of what Kim and I were talking about, how she reads sadder nonfiction than I do before <laughs> the podcast started. And yeah, that reminds me of that. Anyway, I'm reading The Arab of the Future, A Childhood in the Middle East, 1978 to 1984 by Riyadh Satouf, which is uh, a graphic memoir and really, really good. Um, he talks about growing up with a French mother and a Syrian father. Um, living in Libya, where his father got a job um, teaching at the university, and basically what it was like, how he was interpreting it as a child. Uh, they end up moving to France as things in Libya are kind of falling apart. And it's I know that it's got at least three volumes. There might be four. I don't remember. But I immediately, I'm like halfway through, and I put the other two at least on hold at the library. I'm really into it. It's it's one of those books where, like, I started reading it, and I was like, I'm just going to read, like, 10 pages of this. And then I just, like, kept reading and um, had to make myself put it down. So that was, you know, that's an, always a nice surprise when that kind of thing happens. Um, so in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you would take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Real Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>